0: content creators you can't work in a bubble you have to understand all the physical logistics and everything else that goes into the environment in order for the content to seamlessly work i think that that led to that uh that quote that's sort of our our mantra you know it's not just what's on the screen it's what's around it it's what you did before you got to see that thing what you're going to do after um really uh, informs the the design of of content for us (laughs)
1: Welcome to the Attraction Pros Podcast, where we discuss the latest trends and challenges facing the attractions industry today. We chat with some of the top leaders in the field and provide resources that will help develop your career in this great industry. I am Josh Liebman. I am obsessed with the guest experience and helping attractions make that their top priority for success. And I'm
2: Matt Heller. I am passionate about organizational effectiveness, leadership development, and employee
1: engagement. Now sit upright, hold on tight, and get ready for The Attraction Pros Podcast. Hey, Josh, how are you? Hey, Matt, I'm doing well. How are you? I
2: am fantastic. I have a question for you.
1: It, okay. Well, good. I'm really glad to hear you're fantastic today. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah. you. <laughs>
2: um, can you tell me a story without using words?
1: Yes. The end.
2: That's going to be great for a podcast.
1: I know, I know. <laughs> using audio as the medium, that uh, that really <laughs> went in well for that question.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, the reason I asked is because our guest today focuses on visual storytelling, using content and media to tell the story versus, you know, specifically a film or, uh, specific audio content. So it's it's a little bit different way to kind of uh, elaborate on a, an IP or a, a particular story.
1: Yeah, this is a really cool interview. Eric Hung- Hungerford is the president of Mousetrap, which is a, a multimedia visual entertainment company working specifically with location-based entertainment. So theme parks, uh, attractions, observation decks, anywhere where people are in a physical space, and they're often projecting onto multiple different types of services, whether they're walls or they are castles, or I would say anything in between to, uh, to create a story, to create a visual immersive experience. You know, what
2: I thought was really fascinating was how he talked about the process, uh, you know, to go from the idea to the execution and, <clears throat> excuse me, that once you, um, once you bring it to the client and you start showing it that it's really no longer yours. Like you have to kind of um, disconnect a little bit and say, now this, this belongs to the audience, but it's not something that you can experience until you're there and you're in person and you're seeing it happen, uh, which is so powerful. And I think something that our industry does really, really well.
1: Yeah. And he had a great quote that's saying that the work that they do is, is so quantum that it doesn't even exist until it's viewed, which is really powerful. And I've got to imagine is really challenging from the production standpoint to really create something out of nothing with the parameters that are set in place with the objective from the client as the operator and then uh, then the the limitations and, and the budgets and the barriers to get there. And of course, all of the complexities of putting something like this into a physical space and pulling it off flawlessly. So is this a little bit like if the tree falls
2: in the woods and nobody's there to hear it, did it make a sound? I think
1: so. I think it's exactly like
2: that. <laughs> <laughs> I bet if, we had, if we had Eric back, he could tell us again. But uh, no, this, this, was a, this was a really cool uh, um, interview. And if you're not familiar with what Mousetrap does, just go to the website, mousetrap.com, because you will see so many projects that you're probably familiar with. If you're a theme park nerd or if you're a theme park fan, you I'm sure you've seen what they do.
1: Yeah, the, they have worked with uh, just the the top theme parks and destination attractions in the world. And uh, like you said, it's, it's so amazing to hear the process and all the challenges that come with it and Eric's philosophy towards bringing it all to life and really looking forward to getting to this interview.
2: Well, should we go ahead and get to it? I'd say let's jump right into the Mousetrap. Eric, welcome to the Attraction Pros Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Great, great to be here, Matt and Josh. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. Absolutely, so excited to kind of jump into this conversation. So, Eric, can you first tell us a little bit about yourself and Mousetrap?
0: Sure. So, uh, my name is
2: Eric Hungerford.
0: I'm the president of Mousetrap. Mousetrap is a media design and production studio located in Los Angeles. That focuses 100% exclusively on location-based entertainment, um, large-scale installations. Uh, we're not a shop that does film or television work. Um, we are, we are, we call ourselves a niche within a niche, and uh, follow sort of traditional post-production and production pipelines. But uh, our output's much more theatrical. It has to be viewed in a space. It's usually a large format usually weird configurations, or it's map projected in the middle of a theme park somewhere. So it's, it's very unique stuff. And everything we do is a little bit different each time. So it keeps uh, keeps everybody engaged and uh, interested.
2: Excellent. Can you tell us a little bit about your background as well?
0: Yeah, so I, um, I went to film school and wanted to be in the film business and started out, out of college, my first job was at Universal theme parks in Orlando. I worked in the park. Uh, At the time, Universal was really promoting itself as a Hollywood East, right? So they built these state-of-the-art sound stages and there was a big, big advertising movement towards we're gonna bring productions to, to Central Florida. And I thought, well, that's a new market. I'll probably be easier to get in there than New York or LA. So I went down there, worked in the theme park for a while and then moved over to their production department. Which was essentially, they would, uh, they would sell, they would rent out portions of the theme park as a backlot. So you would actually, um, th- commercials would come in, music videos would come in, and they'd think they're shooting at a backlot, but they're shooting in the middle of the theme park. So my job was to be the liaison between the production company and the uh, studio operations. So it was equally hated by by both venues, right? So, um, you know, a director's trying to line up a shot, and we got to tell them to stop because the world show is going on, you know, or I have to tell ops that you can't have people exit this, you know, this exit of the King Kong attraction because there's a film shoot going on. So it was an interesting, interesting look at both, you know, the filmmaking process and the theme park operations process. And from there, one of the shoots I worked on was for Universal Creative, Um, We got along and they offered me a job at Universal Creative in Los Angeles, whose offices at the time, when Creative was based in Universal City, their offices were one floor below Universal Pictures. So I was like, here's my shot at getting into the uh, getting into the film business. But even though it was one floor apart, it was many, many miles between (laughs) the theme park production uh, company and the uh, and Universal Pictures. And then uh, within like. 20 months when we starting there they wanted to move everybody back to Orlando where I had just come from and didn't want to didn't want to do that so worked uh independently for a while um a colleague of mine at Universal Creative Michael Caroni and I formed uh, or started uh our own company and did a lot of work for Universal as independent producers and uh and and media professionals and then from there worked with uh worked with Thinkwell, and Thinkwell led to the head of a group and the head of the group led to mousetrap. And that's, that's it in a nutshell.
1: Cool. <laughs> that's really interesting. And, um, you know, it, it's uh, it, it's interesting, and I, and I say it's it's a little funny too when you talk about kind of the the process of the production that happened inside the theme park as a back lot. uh Matt and I both also actually worked at Universal Studios, Universal Orlando as well. And I remember walking around and occasionally seeing a production or seeing like the A-frame at the front of the park, saying you're yep. walking into a hot set. Your yep. likeness may be used in any film, commercial, music video, or whatever it is. And then. Um, And then actually like following up and like seeing like an occasional music video, I feel like I probably see more, more common than any, uh, any others, at least as far as from, from what I've seen, also television shows and, uh, and movie sets and things like that. And, um, uh, but it, but it's interesting that you say kind of the, uh, the headaches of that and kind of the the friction points on your end of having the production happen in a live theme park because obviously there's there's a lot of value for the guests to show up for a day at a theme park and then being able to see the production of a tv show or a movie or a music video or something like that but then of course the the logistics that you wouldn't have on a movie studio that is not a theme park, and you're able to kind of have that, that exclusive, you know, full access for that. Um, so going back to uh, Mousetrap, can you talk a little bit about uh, your role as president? Uh, you know, what what leadership skills, you know, have have you kind of developed that led to the current role and position that you're in today?
0: I, um, I've had a long relationship with Mousetrap, Um, even in my previous lives in different companies, um, I've engaged mousetrap, um, uh, worked with them at Thinkwell, and worked with them at, at the head of a group. So, um, I, I always say it's a credit to Darren Ulmer who, who owns and ran mousetrap for, for several years that, you know, how many times does a, does a client want to work for a vendor? Right. And so, um, you know, uh, I always enjoyed, you know, their crew, I liked the way they ran the, their operations. And it was 100% media focused, which was really my background. Some of the other shops were really design companies that had a media component to it. And so uh, when the opportunity came on to, to work as a producer for them, I, I took it and uh, went from producing to sort of business development, um, trying to really understand holistically where, where the client needs are. You know, and getting into business development allowed you to see kind of under the hood of why these decisions get made to actually do content and why, um, you know, content sort of the kind of the last thing that gets engaged and kind of tracing back where where the idea came from and where what decisions were made to lead to that uh, decision to do um, LED versus projection or, you know, it's typically financial or logistical, but really get an understanding the clients and what their needs and wants are was a good good segue now into into you know being president, and kind of running the running the studio on a day to day basis, and really understanding the 360 degree view of a project as opposed to just content or just you know what the financials are of of that that RFP or the, or that particular project.
2: You know, Eric. There's something on the um, the Mousetrap website. When the, the very first thing you say is a quote by Henry David Thoreau, and it says, um, "It's not what you think that matters; it's what you see," um, which certainly is important in your kind of work. Can you kind of explain, uh, maybe, how that quote came to be something that was so important to you to put it on the website?
0: I, I think it's understanding the, the the context of the content, right? I always say there's 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 something very quantum about the work we do where it doesn't really exist until it's viewed and it's only viewed in that particular place at that particular moment and so we can't as content creators you can't work in a bubble you have to understand all the physical logistics and everything else that goes into the environment in order for the content to seamlessly work I think that that led to that uh, that quote that's sort of our our mantra, You know, it's not just what's on the screen, it's what's around it, it's what you did before you got to see that thing and what you're going to do after, um, really uh, informs the, the design of, of content for us.
1: That's really interesting. Can you walk us through a little bit of the process that you take from creation to design to production to delivery, kind of those steps along the way of getting from nothing to something?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, in the beginning, it's a lot of it's a lot of fact finding. It's a lot of sitting down with the client, with the stakeholders, and really trying to understand not the what, but the why. It's like, what is what's the emotional response you want to elicit um, from the from the guest after they've seen the content, and how does that inform the rest of rest of the experience? And then you can really use that as your north star as you're designing and, and really going back to that. Um, Holistically th- throughout the process, and from there, it's you know, it's it's refining the idea. Typically, it's a one sentence line. You know, we want we want a thirty minute show <laughs> that's spectacular. And it's like, okay, well, so let's dive into like what that really means. And you know, every every client is different, every stakeholder is different, every audience is different. So, um, who's who's deciding what is the emotional reaction to something, especially if you're in it for so long. Some of these uh, some of these firms have lived with this conceit for years before it gets executed, and it becomes kind of rote. And you have to always imagine that your audience is really who cares about how this how this comes across. And trying to imagine looking at it for the first time is uh, is key to our design process.
2: So Eric, I'm curious about that because I think every artist goes through that, right? Whether it's a visual medium or audio, uh, I'm a musician. So, you know, it's hard to write a song and then think about what that is going to sound like to someone for the very first time after I've lived with it for so long. So what's the process in that, in trying to get that kind of wide-eyed view of a of a first-time park goer to see your product and what that's going to be like and what emotion that's going to elicit?
0: So we have we have certain teams at Mousetrap that do, that are responsible for certain projects, and every so often we'll just bring the whole group together and kind of share what we're doing and get that outside feedback. Um, a lot of times we encourage the client to do the same, like bring in somebody from accounting, have them look at look at this cut and and it does this does this work for them or not? Um, you know, to, to to define a metric for a creative response is really just it's really just folly i mean we've been approached by firms who are like we can measure brainwaves and and you know give you an algorithm that proves out that this will be uh you know successful to audiences and you know you can't you can't you really either have to go by experience kind of gut instinct or and always get that kind of outside view throughout the process so that you're not taking anything for granted
1: when you talk about that Desired emotional response and using that as the North Star, I think that's really interesting. Can you talk about kind of the, the spectrum of what that looks like of types of emotions that I would say how how they differ? Is it is it a broad range or is it generally within kind of you want them to feel... Connected to it, you want them to feel inspired. You want them to feel like they—I don't know—got value for dollar for their ticket price. Or I'm trying to think of the park's long-term goals out of this as well, and how those emotions then, of course, dictate many other aspects of it. But kind of really honing in on on the examples of types of emotions that you work with.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's all project dependent. So if it's a nighttime spectacular, for instance, if it is the closing day, this is the last memory the 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 guests are going to have of this space before they leave and you have to sort of encapsulate everybody's very wildly different experiences in in one thing right so you want to keep it you know positive and joyful um you want um you want to follow the arc of the particular park and make sure that that's reflected in your in your creative if you're doing a intro film you know, you want to set up what the end experience is going to be. You, wanna, you want to almost use it as the, uh, you know, sometimes when we do intro films or intro pieces, we talk about it as the opening credits to a feature film. You know, you want to set the tone and set the flavor and also give, put people in the right mindset to experience, whether it's a ride or it's a show or it's something that doesn't have anything to do with the media, the media's effect on that experience matters you know and we and we try our best to make sure that we keep that in mind through the through the entire process i don't know if that answered your question yeah yeah absolutely
2: (laughs) And Eric, I would imagine that the process is somewhat similar, whether you're designing an attraction or, like on your website, it mentions queues and pre shows and exhibits and um, you know big spectaculars, um, But maybe the scale is different, or you're you're just you've got a, a slightly different view of what you want that experience to be. Um, like you said in the pre show, you're trying to set the stage and, and start to tell the story. Um, so, are there specific differences in those different? facets or is it kind of, kind of kind of a similar process you just put a, a different spin on it based on the outcome?
0: Yeah, I think I think it's that's it exactly. You know, um it's it's all outcome related. Uh if we are doing only queue and pre-show for say a, a dark ride, you know, our 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 take is the second you step in line is when the experience begins. Right. So even if 80% of the people are blown by that monitor, you know, the 20% that aren't that informs the that informs the the decision uh, and the decisions that are made
1: what about i would say considerations in working in various types of environments so working you know, in, in outdoors working, uh, you know, a projection on, on a castle, for instance, versus a completely indoor enclosed environment where I would imagine you've got a little bit more control over the actual elements and, and the lighting and the visuals. Can you talk about kind of how, how those differ from certain environments and how that plays into the whole process and, and the production?
0: Sure. So if, if, it's a, if, it's, uh, if it's a new attraction, say it's uh, an observation deck, and you're doing the, the, the pre-show for it or the, or the intro film for it. Um, it is a controlled environment and it's, it's great. However, you know, you're always up against that deadline. So um, you've got construction crews, you've got lighting and electricians, and you're, you're dancing around a bunch of other people who are really trying to do physical, physical work and actually get the thing built uh, and they're building it up around you. Um, as opposed to doing uh, an outdoor projection show, which is you kind of have the place to yourself because you're doing it overnight, right? You can only, you only do those shows at night. And uh, it, while it's, it's taxing just kind of physically to just be working three, four, five weeks, all night, seven days a week, um, it's, uh, it, there's challenges to both. There's challenges to both. And it's, and it's uh, preparing for those as you get to those final stages of production to make sure that we know what we wanna change on site and we know what we don't wanna change on site. So to be able to, uh, to, to put that in the planning of the process is, is, is key, it's important. You know, We are built to for installations. we a studio that is built with removable render farms and shippable render farms. So we'll typically get a show to 80 or 90% and then go on site and finish. It. And again, going back to that sort of quantum aspect of the show you can pre-vis all you want you can build as many physical models and mock-ups as you want but until you're there standing on in that space you know and hearing it for the first time and kind of feeling the vibe of the place uh, you're never going to really know so to, to give yourselves that flexibility to make those last adjustments in the actual venue is, is key to to the successful projects that we've done
2: so i just have to ask what's a render farm
0: okay Uh, it's a series of computers that are linked together to be able to process uh content right so uh if we want to if we have various elements of visual effects that are composited together the the computers are the ones crunching that data to make it make it one holistic image and then outputting the final 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 piece so um instead of sending something back and talking to uh a team of artists that are sitting in a studio somewhere when you're in New York and they're in LA or you're somewhere else, um, you know, actually having everybody on site and working through that uh, tends, tends to get the best product, best
2: product out there.
1: Gotcha. When you have a, a client approach or when you're starting to work with, with a venue, whether it's a, a theme park or an attraction or an observation deck, what are some of the things that they should be thinking about that. Maybe they wouldn't necessarily think of intuitively because it's not their area of expertise. Of course, it's why they're why they're bringing you in. Uh, but things that should be on their mind to make sure that the project goes off successfully and with as minimal friction as possible.
0: You know, it, a lot of it goes to the the AB integration and you know the decisions of what the display mechanism is going to be. Um, it's it's really hard on a client end to predict two and a half years out what's going to be the best most robust technology that's going to be installed but sometimes they have to make those decisions so you know we like to say we like to get brought into the process as early as possible um, that's rarely possible <laughs> because you know um, there the, you know there's there's costs involved and people have budgets to manage and you know it's it's the lead time on complex media, distribution and display systems is so long that, you know, you need to kind of lock yourselves into those decisions early. But having some sort of uh, vetting process or some sort of, uh, you know, even design sprint to talk through those with the content creators is a step that often gets, gets overlooked and then can sometimes be, can, can save a lot of heartache down the line um, if, if, if firms like ours are approached in that design phase of a project.
2: Hmm. Eric I want to go back to something you mentioned at the very beginning where you said that Mousetrap is 100% exclusively for location-based entertainment and you said I think you said you're not a film uh, production facility Um, is that what you mean kind of being a a niche within a niche Um, and why is that so important that you're exclusively for location-based entertainment
0: there's there's just a, a bunch of institutional knowledge when you try to understand what a what a piece of how a piece of content plays in a three dimensional environment as opposed to on television or on a sixteen by nine frame. You know, um, it, the the methodology is different. The storytelling aspects of it are different, and uh, you know, we try to take that as as, as a positive, right? Um, the, uh, the workflow is different. Um, the budgets are a lot different. Um, and the schedules are a lot different. So, you know, understanding what you're getting into is uh, is key, key for us.
1: Cool. With the configurations that you've worked with, w- are there any that stand out as being uh, some of the most obscure or challenging just from, from a, a three-dimensional space that Um, I mean, that maybe turn into, you know, phenomenal case studies of look what we can do and look where we're able to do it onto this actual physical space.
0: Yeah, so um, even before I started at Mousetrap, um, I worked with them for the kind of intro statement for One World Observatory. And part of that was a 144 panel video display that stretched an entire hallway. And to be able to tell a story across that hallway um, at at a resolution that was like 30,000 k, it was like insane the resolution that needed and and just the the technical considerations of how to break that up and how to involve uh, the uh, the the piece involved interviews with people who were responsible for building a you know, one world trade center. And so there's an emotional component to it. So you don't want to get, you want to find that balance of being able to get the human story across in this very complex display mechanism without having people get either distracted by how strange this kind of configuration is or uh, so wrapped up in it that it didn't matter that it was that configuration of 144 LED panels um, against the wall with, with a reflective floor.
1: <laughs>
2: which then bounce light everywhere. <laughs> that sounds cool. That sounds cool. But that actually brings up a, a maybe an interesting question is that with all the complex technology that you use and the, the new ways to tell a story and, and project images, how do you make sure that we're not just looking at it because it's technology and cool, but, and, and that's not getting in the way. We're just, we're, we're following the story. Does that make sense? Like, like yeah. making sure the, the technology isn't the story that the story is the story.
0: Yeah, it goes back to it goes back to two points that I made earlier, which is find out what the what the core is, what the what the what the point of the content. Content for content's sake is never going to work. Right. Um, I've been on shows where it's like, well, we bought 25 monitors, so we need 25 pieces of media you know and that's that's never going to work it's never going to work at the end of the day of being a very uh, compelling compelling experience um and then it's it's if you're involved early enough it's avoiding doing technology for technology's sake you know um building something to the newest brightest shiniest object is never going to work because guys by the time that things open that technology's out of date right so just find out what the what you want your intention to be And now let's find the best, smartest technology to display that, display that intent.
1: Yeah. So with that said, are there any uh, projects where you intentionally perhaps dismissed some technology in the interest of better storytelling to, to ensure that it wasn't content for content's sake or tech for tech's sake, even if there would have been a more technologically advanced way of doing something that the best approach was actually going to be a simpler or more low-tech approach.
0: A lot of times, you know, interactivity is a big buzzword, especially in content. So it's like, let's have um, user activated content. And so when people pulse into the room, that's when the content will start and it's going to be this very complex infrastructure, or it's like, well, why don't we just time it out, you know? Why don't we time it out, pre-bake it in, and then on some days uh, we run it every three minutes, some days we run it every five minutes, and then it it kind of works itself out, and you save this enormous amount of headache and cost um, to say that uh, for the sole purpose of putting in a marketing brochure somewhere, this is an interactive exhibit as opposed to just this is an exhibit. So we've had that we've had those arguments and then discussions before with, with clients.
2: <laughs> arguments first, then discussions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Eric, I'm also curious because you do work with such high technology, and you know it takes uh, so long to get, let's say, an attraction or or an exhibit um, from the design phase through the execution phase. That when you get on site and Hopefully it will have the, the response that you want, but when the real audience is in there and it doesn't, or maybe that hasn't happened, but maybe it has, where the audience doesn't react the way you think, it, think they will, what happens then?
0: Um, I can't, I can't I, honestly, I can't think of, a, think of an example of where that's happened um, recently. I will tell a tale, hopefully it's not out of school, uh, from my Universal Creative days, where part of what we had to do was uh, content for Universal Studios Japan. And they did this big special effects movie show, and they showed it for the audience for the first time, and it had this very rousing conclusion, and it was dead silence in the uh, in the theater. So everyone started to panic thinking, this show was a bomb, this show just isn't isn't working. And really, it was a cultural thing. It was that audience, that particular culture does not clap or show kind of physical emotion. They still love the show. It got great reviews and stuff, but, um, you know, uh, understanding, A, if there really is a problem, um, it's probably been noticed before we get to opening day, you know, um, with with the amount uh, and the various levels of stakeholders on these complex projects, but um, also just, keeping in mind the where you're at and who, who the audience is and, and understanding that.
1: Yeah. So with that said, then, what is the ultimate measure of success of the response from a show or a project? And and that may vary, differ geographically and, and with cultural norms or traditions, uh, or just in general of being able to kind of quantify how successful this particular project was kind of benchmarking across you know, across others or, or across comparisons?
0: I mean, that's, that's the million dollar question, you know. Um, it's, it's how do you justify the budget for a piece of content that's one piece of a larger, larger uh, experience. Um, I think it's, uh, it's audience uh, satisfaction, you know, it's audience response. If you're hearing about it on social media, if you're getting the, the ops feedback that people really love this piece and want to come back and see it again. Um, that's sort of the measure of, of success, I think, for both us and the client.
2: So, Eric, again, with, with all the, the technology and things that you guys in, incorporate and you get to work with on a daily basis, when you go someplace, whether it's a, a, an exhibit or a theme park, what impresses you?
0: Um, you know, uh, Content where there is uh, content that's invisible. Content where I can't tell how it's being displayed. Um, um, sometimes it can be anything from an immersive theatrical performance or 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 a major theme park. But you know, understanding like I know where the seams are on a lot of these things, and if I can spot the seams, I'm like, okay, I see what they did there. But if I can't spot those seams, um, I'm I want to know why and how <laughs> they did it. But they won't tell me because it, usually it's not us who did it.
1: Yeah it's almost like a magician going to a magic show. So, you know, I can, you know, I can, I can pick that out. I, so kind of taking that and maybe merging the last few questions together, but kind of putting a little bit of a different spin on it is when you do travel or when you do see one of your projects in action or something that you've had a hand in creating, What are you watching? Are you watching the show or are you watching the people watching the show and what are you looking for?
0: We'll watch it twice. We'll watch the show because we want to make sure that like the projector is still bright enough or like uh, it's in sync, you know, and, and we will watch the audience and, and you can feel it, you know, you can feel it in a crowd if if something's landing or not. And it's, we do tend to do that, go back and uh, and then try to avoid the oh if I had only done this you know or oh if I had to do this over again I'd change this but um you know that's that that's a dangerous game to play.
2: Yeah. <laughs> do you have any of those stories that you're able to share like oh I wish I could have done that or I wish I'd done that or or do you try not to get to the point where you're second guessing yourself at, at the at the end of the project?
0: Yeah, you can't really because it's it's out in the world at that point. You know, I remember the first time doing a pretty big project and it the moment it no longer becomes yours it's theirs right and you were hired to do a job and you put a lot of heart and soul and sweat and tears and love into it and then it's not yours anymore it's it's theirs and then it's the audience's so there's nothing you can do at that point but you know uh think fondly on it and
1: uh try not to try not to second guess yourself yeah yeah but you can take that, and if you if you are in that mindset, which hopefully you're you're able to avoid, I imagine you're able to use it productively and kind of funnel it into the next project that you can now continually refine and continually improve. Can you talk a little bit about about that? Or your, I, I would say from the the, whether maybe it's not necessarily the evolution of technology. That's probably a, another question we could get into too, but from a, a process standpoint of saying kind of making sure that each project is, is better and better and there's the, the continual aspect of improvement.
0: I think there's, there's definitely been an evolution of the mapped projection project that the studio has done from its inception to, to now. And a lot of it in the early days became, can I get enough light on this structure to, to see anything, right? And so okay, I can see stuff. And then it became, all right, how do I make it you know very compelling and, and creatively interesting? Um, and then it became, look, there's a reason you cho- chose this structure to project on. That characteristics, those architectural characteristics have to be part of the design of the show. You can't you can't take a structure and have it just just project imagery on it. Um, and because then you're just using it as a weird screen you know a screen that doesn't quite make sense so to really look at the architecture of of the structure um, understand almost from a theatrical point of view what that structure means and why the design of that structure played with that and then play to the strengths of that of that architecture I think I think you could see the evolution of of our content getting more and more sophisticated as it as the uh, as as it moved on, and it wasn't really technology. It's really just approach, it's approach and design. You know, projectors are brighter, servers are faster, but really it's the it's the why that that matters. Um, why you're why you're putting this particular shot on this particular building, and does it make sense for the emotional residency of the uh, of the shot?
2: Yeah. So Eric, this may be kind of a, a big picture question, but I've heard a lot of people talk about creativity and that, you know, if the sky is the limit, if you've got so many options that creativity becomes difficult because you just don't know where to go. And sometimes putting limitations on yourself actually can make you more creative. Are there certain things that you all do to kind of tap into the creativity or is it um, something that you, you've got a process for? I'm just kind of curious about that sort of ideation uh, process that you guys go through.
0: So, yeah, I mean, I, I came from sort of an in, indie background, you know, so I um, after I left Universal Creative, you know, we were pretty scrappy, and it was uh, it, it came down to, you know, if you go over budget on this, that's money out of your pocket. Like we would sit there, my partner, and I actually count out this is how much money this is going to cost us if, if we screw this up. So let's think of a very uh, a different way to, to do it. So we still get the same same response. And, um, you know, I've, I've never been given a budget that I'm like, oh, we got this. What are we going to do with all this money? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, they're always pretty tight. And you always have to think about um, very creative ways to push the envelope. Because at the end of the day, uh, your, um, your potential clients and your audiences aren't like, you know what, that show was amazing for the money they spent on it. That show is either amazing or it wasn't. You know, and um, it's uh, it's a very competitive marketplace. It's a very competitive field that we're in, and so you know we're always pushing ourselves to do more for less. Not if there's any clients out there that we can do more for less. But
1: uh. (laughs) so I kind of maybe touching on. Kind of a, a little bit of what we were talking about it a, a few minutes ago, as far as measuring the audience response, which you just kind of said is, is binary either either they they enjoyed it or they didn't, or it was you know, it was missing or it wasn't. Uh, from the client side, as far as being able to uh, prove the ROI, to say this is the budget and you're you're going to get this back in some way, shape, or form, even though what you're doing they're not revenue generating. Productions, and I imagine they're you know very high cost too. So being able to say this is this is how you're able to get this back, whether it's length of stay in the park, or you know, is it is it souvenirs you can sell right around the the time of of the show that are able to kind of feed into that? What are some of those KPIs that help justify the ROI to uh, to implement this?
0: I think a lot with with the advent of social media, um, it's what's the Instagrammable moment? You know, what's the what's the picture that? Um, you know, you don't need to bring in a professional film crew now to document your attraction, you know, the audience is going to do that for you. And, you know, one of those things takes off or becomes your signature look or piece that that gets you a lot of ROI right there, right then and there. Um, it's, uh, it's the discourse, you know, it's, it's the audience discourse on, on, an attraction, um, you know, for some of the bigger theme parks, you know, there are fans that are extremely vocal about what they like and don't like. And there are people that have a, um, you know, are taken very seriously in, the, in, that, in that sphere. And so, uh, you know, not that we do fan service all the time, um, but we do do audience service and uh, it, it, it's paid out pretty well for us so far.
2: Yeah, you, you brought up something interesting because I think there are some fans out there that are very loud right, on social media, but maybe your, your general public isn't as loud, but they're really the ones that you're creating that, that show for. So how do you maybe balance those those loud people that may be uh, less uh, excited about your product versus, you know, the hundreds of thousands of people who love it that may, may, may not say much?
0: Yeah, I mean, you'll, you'll see it in just the audience surveys that are going out, you know, yeah. Yeah. Um so-and-so on Twitter hated this show and there's uh, a thousand tweets a day about it, but our, you know, our, our audience satisfaction metrics are through the roof. So, you know, it, that balances out. That balances out.
1: Yeah. No, I, I think that's a good point too, because, uh, you know, especially with, with social media and with our communication channels these days, it's very easy to be a critic. It, it can be very easy to see something and then just, be the one who decides, you know, was was this good, was this not? And then kind of balancing that, like you said, it's it's important to to measure with saying, okay, these these are what the enthusiasts say who might you know feel a little bit more elite in some cases, and we don't need to go down down that route. But here's what the general public and that and the mass amount of of your admission dollars is coming from. And uh, and in many cases, they may not be as loud, but they are, are able to they are they're louder in general with the more aggregate than enthusiasts who might have a large following on social media but actually carry a much smaller portion of the attendance and they go back and they see it anyway and they do it they do it anyway again and uh, even though they they might say something they don't have the I don't know the the experience to back up any criticism and critique Um How how often do you spend, I don't know, scrolling through Twitter or seeing, seeing what people say, whether it's from the general public or whether it's from the, the bloggers and the enthusiasts who, who feel like they can, I don't know, bring themselves up by, by putting projects down without knowing the hours and the dollars and the energy and resources behind it all?
0: Yeah. When I was doing, when I was doing business development, I would do it a lot. I would do it a lot. You know, I'd, I'd like to see where, you know, where things were working, where things weren't. Now I tend I tend not to. It's sort of like you know what the you know what the job is. You know you know you did you know the studio produced what we said we were going to produce. Everybody's happy. You know you can't you can't get into that do loop of uh, you know obsessing over some random you know tweet or you know thing on Instagram or whatever. Um. So at the same time you can't take if you're not going to take the negative you can't take the positive you know so you just have to sort of you know it's out there every now and then somebody will forward me something and it'll be positive and it's like yeah great but um you know we uh we 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 don't take too much stock in too much stock in that
2: yeah Eric, I'd like to go way, way back. So you kind of talked us through starting at Universal and things like that. What was it about, like being in the film business and the media uh, creation business, that really got you excited? And and kind of how did how did your maybe early experiences drive you to that um, that conclusion of that's what you wanted to do?
0: I mean, I was I've always been a total movie nerd. I loved films. I'm a total cinephile. Um, You know, so uh, being at Universal, the theme park where you know movies came to life, there was back in the day, probably nobody even remembers this. There was like an Alfred Hitchcock exhibit at Universal Orlando that was like really amazing. And like they did the birds in 3D and they talked about filmmaking. And it was like, this is this is my this is my scene for sure. Right. And then it just sort of evolved, you know, from traditional filmmaking to, to to this kind of this kind of work where I actually find it more satisfying. Um, you know, there are probably, um, I, da- I dabbled a little bit in independent film and I guarantee you there is a show somewhere that has had more eyeballs on it than any, any indie film that can be looked on your phone or, or anything like that. Now that content's so ubiquitous, what makes a piece of content special is you actually have to go out and see it. And with the, you know, decline in movie theaters and just the, the everyone's got a ton of entertainment at their fingertips, really utilizing that opportunity to tell a story in a unique space, I think is very exciting. And uh, is sort of the evolution of media entertainment.
1: Hmm. So taking this a little bit deeper as we kind of get a little little bit towards the, the end of the interview here, when you talk about telling stories in this type of space and even tying back to what you were saying earlier of that emotional response that you're getting from the visitor, it's really powerful. And why is it so important to be telling stories, whether it's in location-based entertainment or whether it's in film? And as far as what do you see as kind of your importance in moving people and inspiring people and creating that emotional impact on people when they're at a theme park or at an attraction or at a a location-based venue? Hmm. Um,
0: It's, it's really the whole experience of whatever this venue is, whether it's a theme park or an observation deck. You know, we don't ever think that anyone goes to a theme park to see a media-based show, right? Um, it, has to, it has to be an organic part of storytelling but not the part of storytelling, right? So we are just one piece of the puzzle and I think if we, you know, see ourselves that way and see ourselves as a fit to a larger story, um, it makes it it makes it more more engaging for the guest and and more engaging for for us, honestly, um, you know, to to get excited about it and and, and to do it. Um, I think you're gonna you're gonna see a or we are seeing this transition from passive to active entertainment, um, you know and one part of that is just getting in the car and going someplace to see something um, and seeing it as a group and seeing it with a group of people, especially now that the kind of theatrical model is not what it used to be. Um, experiencing something collectively is powerful. And uh, to be a part of that is uh, is, is really an honor for us, um, honestly. And uh, we, uh, we just see ourselves as one, one, one piece of that small piece of that
2: very cool well eric this has been a, a fascinating uh, conversation and we really appreciate your time um if people wanted to know more about you or mousetrap where would you send them
0: yeah you can go to uh, mousetrap.com mousetrap is the uh the french spelling m-o-u-s-e-t-r-a-p-p-e dot com um, mousetrap is also part of uh, a new group called um medici xd which is the Medici Experience Design. um, That is a a joint venture between Darren Ulmer who started Mousetrap and Chuck Fawcett. Um, And you can go to MediciXD.com to learn more about them.
1: Awesome. Where did the name Mousetrap come from?
0: Um, It came from an old, no. (laughs) you know that's a that's a question for 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 darren ulmer um i think it came from an offshoot of uh you know the work that he had done at disney um and uh it it goes to the old saying build a better mousetrap right Mm -hmm. and and just trying to think of new and interesting ways to solve problems but i will tell you that we do get about three phone calls a week looking for exterminators <laughs> so that could name be another line of business be, one. Day. Yeah, yeah. Name change might be might be in order at some point. So
1: <laughs> excellent. Eric, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you and learn all about Mousetrap and about what you do. And for everyone out there who is watching and listening, just remember we are all attraction pros. Thanks for listening to the Attraction Pros Podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you can tune in when new episodes release. And even better, please leave us a review on iTunes. For more information, visit attractionpros.com.